several different passages, so I just want you to have them ready. Uh, have your sword ready for attacking, but we're not ready yet to tell you where. So uh, uh, hold on for just a moment. <clears throat> Tonight, uh, I want to begin a series of messages that are intended to help us with applying the Word of God to our everyday lives. Um, Particularly, I want these messages to help us learn to think from a Christian perspective. We're going to continue in Romans, of course, on Sunday mornings, but at least for a few weeks, I want to devote some of our Sunday nights to asking the question, what does the Bible say about blank? (laughs) Because there are a number of Uh, practical, contemporary issues and realities that you and I face every day, that if we're going to live for Christ in this world, we need to know what does the Bible say about that. And we want to make sure that we are thinking biblically. So, for example, I want us to address what the Bible has to say about entertainment. The place of entertainment in our lives, the kinds of entertainment available to us. I want us to look at what the Bible says about sports, about reading, about sleep, about the internet. I want us to think about what the Bible has to say about education and economics and war and the environment. I want us to think about atheism and the theory of evolution and this thing called feminism. What does the Bible say about physical fitness? A lot of people in January thinking about physical fitness. What does the Bible have to say about that? What does the Bible say about psychology or racism or poverty? I don't know that we'll hit all of those subjects, and there may be others that show up along the way, but I at least want to prepare you that uh, over the next several Sunday nights, I will be bringing to you various subjects and asking the question, What does the Bible have to say about that? And the goal in this is not just to deal with those subjects in particular, but to help you and me uh, to learn how to apply the theology of the Bible that we're learning uh, on Sunday mornings in our Sunday school classes. How do we apply what we're learning to these practical, everyday, contemporary issues? And so even more than addressing those individual subjects, I want us to learn how to think biblically and uh, with a Christian perspective. Um, The aim is for us to have the mind of Christ uh, concerning this life. And this evening I thought I'd start with an issue uh, that has been very prominent uh, in these last few days, weeks, and and ultimately over the last several years. Um, It's a controversial issue in our society, and yet it is an issue that I think it's easy for us to start with because I don't think the Bible is unclear about it at all. I think uh, if we understand much of the Bible uh, at all, we know where the Bible comes down on it. And I'm talking about the issue of gay marriage. Gay marriage. Uh, There are several reasons why I want to begin with this particular issue. One is that this issue is much more pressing today than it was even five years ago or ten years ago. Um, I remember talking about this subject many, many years ago, and then we were talking mainly in hypotheticals. Well, today we're no longer talking in hypotheticals. Uh, Today it's happening in various states in our nation. Um, It's actually occurring in states like New York and New Hampshire and 
California and elsewhere, homosexual men, homosexual women are being declared legally married by the law of those states. Uh, What's more, we're seeing uh, homosexual marriages appearing in, in television and movies, and no longer in the fictional sense, but in reality television. Um, one of the things that brought this to my mind was over Christmas. Uh, we were at Crystal's house, and uh, the TV was on, and, and, uh, and they were watching HGTV, Home and Garden Television, I guess is what it stands for. But I, I just noticed over several episodes that were just playing on the TV, they weren't even watching, that's probably the only one that noticed, but um, the, they were you know, showing about getting this house ready to sell or how to make this house look nice. But in each episode, the couple that they were focusing on was a homosexual married couple. Uh, they were focusing on these real um, folks who, who were married, at least legally speaking, and who were gay as if it was something normal, as if it was just a part of everyday life. Uh, though homosexuality ought to be considered a shameful practice, uh, it appears that there's no longer shame in it uh, for many in our society. It's no longer something that we can keep hidden Uh, from our children and hope they won't notice that it's happening around us. It's becoming more and more evident and it's something that Christians are going to have to address and something we're going to have to address very, very clearly, especially for the generation that's coming up so they'll know how to think biblically about this subject. Second, we need to address this issue because of the implications and the effects of gay marriage on a society. Uh, The fact is a culture that deems something like this as normal, or a culture that deems gay marriage as morally neutral, is a culture that has lost its way and is confused about what is right and what is wrong. This kind of society is a kind that is calling evil good and good evil. Uh, More and more now we hear gay marriage spoken of as a civil right meaning that if you attempt to prohibit this, if you attempt to denounce this, you are the bad guy. You are keeping people from what they are now calling a civil right. So recently, presidential candidate Rick Santorum in New Hampshire spoke about this and was booed by the audience that he was speaking to when he said that gays should not be allowed to marry. And he continued to be mocked and and treated as a laughingstock in the media because he made what was actually a valid logical point about how opening the door up to gay marriage would lead to other things. And uh, he suggested include ultimately one day even things like bestiality. And for that, he was greatly mocked by the media. Those who stand up for righteousness, those who stand up for true justice are increasingly looked at as the unrighteous ones in our society, as the bad guys. And we need to be prepared to live in a society like this. And our children and our grandchildren need to be prepared to live in a society like this. Courage is going to be needed. Um, I don't think it's a, uh, uh, a strange thing at all that uh, particularly in the book of Revelation where the focus is on the progression of the end times and things getting worse and worse for the church of Christ. There's a real focus on courage in the book of Revelation and calling Christians to be courageous. I think that's something we're going to need in this society. Uh, There are other reasons we need to be thinking about this, but I think ultimately this issue needs to be addressed because marriage is about the gospel 
And so a distortion of marriage represents a distortion of the gospel itself. The primary purpose of marriage is to be an effective living display of the true love that Christ has for His church. True marriage is meant to give off the aroma of the love of Christ. And what gay marriage does is it redefines marital love even as it redefines marriage. And so it presents a perversion, a distortion of the gospel. And so I want us to begin this little series tonight with the question, what does the Bible say about gay marriage? And so let's turn first to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 3. For thinking the way Christ does, our mind will immediately go to the beginning. What did God institute marriage to be? And that's exactly what Jesus does here. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 3. And Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And He answered, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now notice that in answering a question about marriage, particularly here about divorce, but a question that deals with the nature of marriage, Jesus does not hesitate to go all the way back to Genesis 2 and the very first marriage. Jesus sees the marriage of Adam and Eve as paradigmatic. We've talked about that before. Paradigmatic. Setting the paradigm. Marriage was instituted by God. Right? Jesus says. It was God who created marriage. It was God who established this earth and established what marriage would be on this earth. It is therefore God who defines it. And what is the paradigm that God set forth? It is the union of one man and one woman in a covenant relationship. The verse says, A man shall leave his father and his mother. Amen. So one man is in view. And he leaves his father and his mother because a new loyalty is being established. A a loyalty to a woman. He's giving himself to his wife. We're told that he'll hold fast to her. That he'll cling to her that he'll enter into a relationship with her. And that term, his wife, is the term that's used, not his wives. And so it's clear that one woman is in view. And and of course, Jesus emphasizes that when he says that that he created them male and female, right? When talking about marriage, Jesus points out that God created them male and female. Jesus is looking back to a passage where God was creating a helpmate for Adam And it was only after other creatures had been considered that God put Adam in a deep sleep and fashioned Eve out of his own flesh and bone. So companionship was in view. Partnership was in view. God could have created another man out of Adam's flesh and bone, but He didn't do that. He created a woman out of Adam's flesh and bone. The 
the man for the woman, the woman for the man. And so the first point to see is that marriage is the union of a man and a woman in a covenant relationship. Gay marriage may be a term that people use, but from God's perspective, and this is the only perspective that really counts, there is no such thing as gay marriage. It cannot truly exist. Marriage is between a man and a woman. That's how God defined it. That's how God instituted it. And so if both partners are of the same gender, what you have is not marriage no matter what you call it. You can call it marriage all you want, but it doesn't change what it is. I can call a rock a tree all day long, but it doesn't change the fact that it's still a rock. Gay marriage is not marriage at all, no matter how often it's called marriage. By however many people in our society, we're not God. We do not get to redefine reality. And so that's point number one. What does the Bible say about gay marriage? It says there's no such thing. It says that that's not what marriage is. The second point we need to make is that marriage and homosexuality are incompatible because one is honorable and the other is dishonorable. When people try to bring together homosexuality with the institution of marriage, they are trying to combine darkness with light, goodness with evil, things that cannot truly go together. Look with me at Romans 1. Romans 1. This is a familiar passage, I'm sure, for you. But we're going to look at verses 26 and 27. And what I want you to note as we read these two verses, 26 and 27, I want you to note the adjectives that Paul uses. I want you to note the way he describes homosexuality. Beginning in verse 26, For this reason, God gave them up to passions. Is that what it says? What's the adjective there? Dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing acts. No. Shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. When we look at the words that Paul uses to describe homosexuality in these passages, we read of dishonorable passions. We read of relations that are contrary to nature. We read of shameless acts. Right? He calls these things an, an error. Now compare that to marriage. How does the Bible speak about marriage. Hebrews 13.4 Let marriage be held in honor among all. Right. So on the one hand, homosexuality is dishonorable. On the other hand, marriage is honorable. It is to be held in honor. It is to be esteemed as a noble institution. Therefore, can you continue to have marriage as an honorable institution if you bring something that is dishonorable into it and connect them together? You can't. And so the idea of gay marriage is the idea of of a defiling marriage, of corrupting marriage, of taking something honorable and making it dishonorable. And so 
Not only is there no biblically such thing as gay marriage, but, but there can't be. They are morally incompatible because one is honorable and the other is dishonorable. A third point that reveals how gay marriage is actually a distortion of true marriage is that God instituted marriage. Uh, one reason for God instituting marriage was to provide a context for childbearing. That is, in the beginning, God gave man certain mandates. And then He provided institutions for fulfilling those mandates. So, for example, one mandate was, go work the earth. Go be productive. I want you to do things with this garden, Adam. Go and work the garden. And then He says, I'm going to give you a work week, right? I'm going to give you six days to work. He gave a context. Another mandate was, I don't want you to do all work. I want you to rest. I want you to have refreshment for your soul. I want you to have a time that is set aside to just feasting on me and my glory. And then he provided an institution for that mandate. He instituted the Sabbath. Well, in the same way, God gave the mandate of procreation. He told Adam and Eve, go in and multiply and fill the earth. And what institution did he give in which that is to take place? And it was the institution of marriage. To see that very clearly, turn to Malachi 2. Malachi chapter 2. Malachi, of course, is the last book of the Old Testament uh, before the Gospel of Matthew. So Malachi chapter 2 makes very clear that, that the marriage was given as an institution to be a context for childbearing. Malachi 2, beginning in verse 14. Well, might as well begin in verse 13. Malachi 2, beginning in verse 13. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. That passage is important for a number of reasons, including the fact that it teaches more explicitly than any other passage in the Bible that God Himself puts His Spirit into the marriage union. That marriage is not just the coming together of two, it's the coming together of three. That there is a spiritual aspect to marriage. A very mysterious aspect of marriage. But the main thing I want us to see right now in that passage is that one of God's purposes in marriage was the producing of godly offspring. What was the one God after? What was He seeking? Godly offspring. Adam and Eve were to walk with Him. Adam and Eve were to to love Him and to live in His love. And they were to produce children who would do the same. In the beginning, marriage was connected to childbearing. And it was in this institution that children were to be conceived and born and raised. And I would suggest that God's purpose in this matter has not changed. He never revoked this and said, well, I've changed my mind now. Now let's have children being born outside the context of marriage. No, that's not the the way that God designed it to happen. Now this doesn't mean that every married couple will have children. 
But at least biologically, the, the possibility for reproduction is there. Not so in gay marriage. In gay marriage, there's not even the, the biology for childbearing. Reproduction is an impossibility for homosexual couples. Surely one of the strongest arguments against homosexuality is that if everyone embraced it, the human race would be wiped out in one generation. Homosexuality, if universally embraced, would kill humanity and we would cease to exist. And so the third point is that homosexual marriage destroys the childbearing purpose of marriage. Now these are all important points that the Bible teaches on the subject and I think arguments that would quickly come to mind when thinking about the subject of gay marriage. But again, I think the ultimate argument that we have and the way that we should always think about every moral issue is this. What does it do to the gospel? How does it connect to the gospel? And Paul clearly teaches in Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. Go ahead and turn there if you want. You know this passage, Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. Paul clearly teaches there that marriage is about Christ and that marriage is about Christ's church and the love that is between them. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 31, he's quoting from Genesis 2. Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And the parallel is obvious, right? The husband is to represent Jesus and the way he protects his people, the way he serves his people, the way he cares his people, even to the point of death. A husband is to love his wife in the same way. He's to love his wife the way Christ loves the church, even to the point of death. Paul says that in verse 25 of that very passage. Meanwhile, the woman is to represent the bride of Christ, the church, as she respects her husband and submits to him and follows him. When a marriage is properly ordered and full of love, and when Christ is at the center of it, that marriage becomes a powerful testimony to the glory of Jesus and the truth of the gospel. But in gay marriage, how does this work? Who represents Christ? Who represents the bride? Who is the leader and who is the helpmate? God has never determined those things in Scripture for a homosexual relationship. He has determined such things only for marriage, the union of a man and a woman. And so the Bible teaches us what marriage is. The Bible teaches us what marriage is about. And from that position, we can clearly see that the idea of gay marriage is a distortion of the truth. Now, anytime an issue like this is brought up, there are questions that people have. And so what I'm going to do is try and address a couple of questions that you might have. And then um, if you want to, we'll take a moment at the end of the service and you can ask others. But um, first, this question. Are homosexuals born that way? You ever hear that question brought up? That is hotly debated in our society right now. Are homosexuals born that way? Is homosexuality the result of nature or nurture? Right? Is it the result of someone's genetic makeup over which they have no control? Or could it be that, that homosexuality is, is the result of, 
uh, environmental factors, the kind of family that one, that one grew up in, for example. And this is a pretty difficult issue because the Bible only goes so far in giving us help. But there is one thing I think we can say for sure from Scripture. I think we can say that before the fall, homosexuality was not natural to anyone. Before the fall, when all things were right, homosexuality was not natural the tendency towards homosexuality that some people experience was not something that would have occurred before the fall. Remember in Romans 1.26, we read it a while ago, Paul says that homosexuality is contrary to nature. It's contrary to God's design for the natural world. And so when God looked at His creation on that last day of creation week and declared all to be very good, I do not believe that homosexuality was present Now that said, we do know that because of sin, we are under a curse. And we know that therefore things in this world go wrong. So I do not immediately assume that there can be no genetic tendency towards homosexuality. remember years ago reading an article in Time magazine in which the author was arguing that science now points to the prospect that we are all born with various genetic predispositions. That is, we are all born with certain attitudes and behaviors that we are more prone to than other people around us. And this author argued argued that it was the decisions we make, it was the environmental factors around us that either triggered those propensities or didn't trigger those propensities. And And so he was arguing two people may be prone to the same thing genetically, but only one would have that propensity triggered by something that happens when they're growing up or something that happens around them. It's a very mechanical way of speaking about these things, but I, I don't, it would not surprise me uh, if there's an element of truth to that. After all, we do know that there are many other sins that we are prone to by nature. We don't have to teach children to be selfish, do we? We don't have to teach people how to lie. Environmental factors do not need to be at work in order for some sins to take place. And so if part of the curse included that some people have a greater propensity or tendency towards homosexual sin than others, I don't think we should be stunned by that. I don't think it should cause our worldview to be overthrown and for us to think that that Christianity isn't right the way some people have thought. But I don't think that saying... Well, people are just born that way. I don't think that's the whole picture. Some people may be born with a greater tendency towards homosexuality than others, but that's not the whole story. Many psychologists, and we always have to be careful about psychology, but many psychologists hold that homosexuality is largely a result of a person's environment in childhood, for example. Studies have shown that homosexual men, more than heterosexual men, report that their fathers were cold and were detached from them in childhood. James Dobson uh, says the same thing. If you've ever read James Dobson's Bringing Up Boys, he talks at length about uh, the trends they found in those men who claim to be homosexual. He argues from his research that boys who grow up to be homosexuals tend to be the ones who stuck more to their mothers in childhood those who became either somewhat effeminate in nature or even more commonly, he says, they were simply non-masculine in nature. They tended to be passive rather than aggressive. 
my own suspicion is that homosexuality is probably a result of both nature and nurture. Namely, it's probably a result of the curse on the biological makeup of people as well as the curse on the kind of society that we experience and the kind of relationships that we experience in our society. But make no mistake, homosexuality is a part of the curse. It is not a positive thing. It is a bad thing. It is a sin. It is so politically incorrect to say that these days. It is so dangerous for Christians to say such things, but we need to be clear. Homosexuality is a sin. And just because something maybe comes natural to someone does not make it right. Heterosexuality comes natural to most of us, but that does not mean that there are no limits and no restrictions to be observed. Heterosexuality becomes sin if it is not placed in its proper context. And arguing that we were born that way is not an excuse for sin. Well, even if scientists could somehow prove tomorrow that homosexuals have no choice but to feel the feelings they have, it would not legitimize their sin. It would only point us to how desperately messed up the human race is and how badly we need the grace of Christ to fix us. The logic that Rick Santorum used a couple weeks ago uh, was not really all that off base because homosexuals are not the only ones who claim that they can't help how they are, that they were born that way and they, they have no choices in it. There are child abusers who make similar claims. Uh, there are many serial adulterers who make those kinds of claims. I remember when uh, we lived in Mississippi, there was a fella who would call up the church and uh, he was always anonymous. He would never tell us who he was, but he would speak to us over the phone and he would weep uh, about the struggles he was having with homosexuality. He would talk about how badly he wanted to be different and about how powerless he felt to change. And so we need to be careful. We don't want to treat homosexuals as though they are worse sinners than us. All of us have sins that come natural to us. And all of us are in desperate need of the grace of Christ. And so we need to be careful that we walk the line of being sure to love homosexuals even as we speak firmly and clearly against the sin of homosexuality. We need to be compassionate truth-tellers. We need to speak the truth in love about this issue. That's what we need if we're going to respond well to the rise of homosexuality in our culture. Now the other question I thought I'd answer is this one because we hear it fairly often and it's one that that man was calling about those years ago. His question was, can a homosexual be a Christian? Can a homosexual be a Christian? How would you answer that question, I wonder, in your own mind if someone asked you that question? I think the passage that helps a lot is 1 Corinthians 6. So if you'd go there, 1 Corinthians 6. Look at verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, 
nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I think we see three things there. First, notice that homosexuals who live in their sin, who embrace their sin rather than repent of it, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible is just very clear about that. The Bible is clear that those who continue in sin without repentance will not go to heaven. They will go to hell. And that's true not only of homosexuals. It's true of every one of us in every sin we face. If we do not repent of our sin, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. What was the message Jesus proclaimed? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance is absolutely necessary to belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus says, walk this way, and you continue walking this way, are you following the Lord Jesus Christ? No. So repentance is absolutely necessary if you're going to be a believer, if you're going to walk with Christ, if if you're going to trust Him. And so our verse says that men who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is no salvation apart from turning away from your sins. And so it is very hard to see how anyone can be a serious follower of Christ while embracing a homosexual lifestyle. Now, the second thing I would say is this. Do not take this to mean that everyone who struggles with homosexual tendencies is therefore not a Christian. I say this thinking of that fellow who used to call the church and talk about this. This man may very well have been a Christian because he really seemed to be trying to turn away from his sin. It was hard for him. There were relapses in his behavior. And I don't know the man's heart, so I can't speak about exactly whether he was a Christian or not. But God knows his heart. God knows whether he was truly penitent, whether he was truly wanting to follow Christ or not. But if he was, if he was truly looking to Christ for help, then even as he struggled, there's good reason to believe that he was a child of God. Think about Christians who struggle with tendencies towards alcohol Christians who struggle with tendencies towards greed or really Christians who struggle with any besetting sin. And I think that's probably all of us, right? All of us know sins in our lives that we hate, that we're trying to turn from, and yet they appear again and again. And so praise God, besetting sins do not mean that we are not saved. We should hate them. We should war against them. We should mortify them. But all of that said, they do not mean that we are not gods, and we should be thankful for that. Third, we see from this this passage that homosexuals can be saved from their homosexuality. We see that people can change. There is a myth in our society right now that because some people think that homosexuals are born that way, therefore they can never change. And therefore they can never be different than they are. This passage clearly speaks against that. Paul uses the past tense speaking to the Corinthians And such were some of you. In other words, he says to these Christians of Corinth, some of you used to live this way. 
Some of you used to practice homosexuality, but that describes you no longer. That's no longer who you are. People mock that idea that homosexuality can be cured, and that's the word they often use, cured. Homosexuality is not a disease to be cured anyway. It's a sin to be defeated. Um, Love for Christ can become more dominant in a person's heart and hold sway over a person's thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors so that they can defeat any sin. I I don't know what sin you might be struggling with tonight. I don't know what, what propensities you may be dealing with, but your sins can be defeated if you live in the love of Christ, if you rest in Him, if you're devoted to His purposes, if you're cultivating a love for Christ in your heart and a a commitment to His purposes in your life, if, if you're setting your mind on things that are above, then with prayer, and, and I mean with much prayer, your sins can be defeated. Christ has already saved us from the penalty of sin. Thank God. And now He has set us free from the power of sin. We are no longer held captive by it. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. And of course, there's coming a day when we will be removed from the presence of sin. And we will no longer have battles with besetting sins. And so, uh, can people be healed, cured of their homosexuality? I don't like that language, but they can defeat that sin and live a life of faithfulness and purity to Christ but it takes the work of the Holy Spirit and it takes the help of God. All righty. Any, uh, any questions about this particular subject and what the Bible has to say about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. Uh, repentance, thankfully, belonging to Jesus, thankfully, is not a past and present thing only. It covers the future. With the difference between the person who continues in their sin and goes to hell and the one who struggles with their sin but goes to heaven is just that. One person is living happily in it. One person is living comfortably in it. One person is living without a fight, without a struggle, without a battle, embracing the sin, uh, whereas another person is honestly seeking to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You're basically saying one's not saved and content to live in sin. Exactly. That's exactly right. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, the Spirit of God in your soul is not going to be comfortable and content with the sins that the Bible reveals to you. Um, if the Spirit of God is not in your heart, well, then you may continue very happily in your sin. So, yeah. Was that clear to everybody? Does that make sense to everybody, the difference? Okay, it's a very important distinction. Any other uh, questions about uh, uh, this subject in particular? I mean, what, what do you think the parents have to ask 
I think parents will have to answer to God for whether or not they sought to train their child up in the ways of righteousness, which means if parents were seeing that their child may have a struggle with homosexuality, um, you, you, would, you would expect that they would try and do what they can you know, to help that child, uh, whether it be just teaching them what the Bible says about biblical manhood and womanhood, uh, whether it be teaching them about uh, you know, what marriage is, uh, whether it be encouraging boys and, and, and being masculine and encouraging uh, girls and being feminine. And by the way, we're all, everybody is on a, uh, uh, a scale, so to speak. I mean, not every man is uber-masculine, right? And not every woman is uber-feminine, and, and that's okay, I think. I think we're all on a, on a scale there, but uh, just because one boy may be a little more feminine than others or one girl is a little more masculine than others, I don't think that becomes a license for, for sin. And so parents teaching their children uh, the truth about what real masculinity, real femininity, real manhood, real ma- womanhood, and those kinds of things, I think, matters. It is sad that in recent generations... Uh, there have been parents who have openly encouraged their children to be different and to be entering into a homosexual lifestyle. There are parents who have uh, tried to get their girls to play with toy trucks and the boys to play with Barbie dolls and, uh, because they wanted to create a new kind of culture, a new kind of society. And uh, I think those parents will, be, um, will have something to pay for uh, when they stand before God because they were going, openly going against the design that God uh, created. I, I don't want to uh, diminish that I think this can be a real struggle for people, and I don't want to make it seem all neat and easy and clean. It's not. We live in a cursed and fallen world. There can be a lot of hurt and a lot of pain for people in these things, and I don't want us to, to deny that or to diminish that in any respect. Um, but we do know that our Lord Jesus is faithful to give us the grace we need for any situation, no matter how hard or how dark it might be for someone. So, Does that, does that help at all, Bill? Does that make any sense? Yeah. 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 If you want to uh, to see where society's heading, the two places to look are California and the universities, and uh, and both are, are very telling. You know, now in many universities there uh, are gender neutral dorms and gender neutral bathrooms, and boys and girls are just supposed to get used to to being together in those situations and. And, uh, and, and it's, it's a very dangerous prospect. And, of course, in California, not only is the, the gender-neutral thing going on, but uh, now there's a, an almost openly gay agenda uh, that's happening in the school system where uh, they've recently passed a law that uh, public school teachers in California must teach as part of their history curriculum the efforts of homosexuals in bringing about civil rights for homosexual people. So they've bought the ideology of homosexuality is a civil right. Gay marriage is a civil right. And they're already seeking to honor those who helped bring that to the fore and bring that to happen. And so, um, you know, that's, that's where California is. And, you know, we have a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ in California who we ought to be praying for and uh, asking that God would give them wisdom and direction as they seek to, uh, to do what's right. So, Any other any other questions? I think more than ever it's really apparent we really have to teach our children yeah. society does make it seem okay and when yeah. I was growing up it was fine when they were in the closet and, and there was shame in it and, hmm. and now it's like you, you really need to have that relationship 
yeah. Yeah, it's. I mean, there. You know, there, there's a there's a sizable gay community in Rocky Mount. There's been uh, a couple of times in Walmart when uh, when we've seen uh, uh, guys dressed as girls, girls dressed as guys, that kind of thing. And um, and so it's it's no longer something that we can avoid talking to our children about because our children are going to encounter it. We may not like that, but they are going to encounter it. And so teaching our children how to respond well. And, and walking that tough balance between being clear about how sinful homosexuality is while helping them to see there but for the grace of God goes I, right? That, that I need to be sure that I show love to this person. What that person needs is the gospel, right? What that person needs is an expression of grace and love. And so finding a way to help our children to grasp that and helping us to grasp that, I think, is uh, going to be very, very important. Um, And the kettle, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you've, you've really hit on something there, Deborah. I think you're exactly right, and I think we talked about that even with the polygamy and some other things. It, it doesn't start out as a serious thing. A lot of times it starts out in media and laughing and joking and humorous. And once you've gotten there, the battle's almost over. I mean, they really have. So, yeah. I'm thankful for the freedoms that we still have because even speaking the truth about a politically incorrect mm. subject is considered hate speech already in this country. Yeah, yeah, that's and, right. Um, the term that we're seeing um, labeled and thrown around a lot is bigotry mm. because of intolerance. But yeah. what we're seeing grow more and more is the intolerance towards Christians because mm. we take Yeah, and, and you're, you're exactly right, Seth. In fact, I don't know if you have noticed that, and, and I know some people spend more time on Facebook than others and things like that, but um, I, I have seen that term, bigot, bigotry, thrown around a lot against, those, against Christians who, who would say something against homosexuality. Um, and so that's, that's exactly an example of how those who are trying to do the right thing are being turned into those who are the bad guys. And uh, we need to be aware aware of that. So. Okay. Mm-hmm. What, if anything, do you think are our political obligations? <laughs> um, okay, so here's where Christian liberty comes into play. Her question was, what are our political obligations regarding this? And um, I am all, I'm pretty much not going to answer your question, and I'll, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because, okay. Yeah, uh, well, I, no, I, okay, so there are some things the Bible was clear on that I can stand up here and say, thus saith the Lord. There are some points of application in which things get much more difficult, and Christians, both two Christians standing on the Word of God, can come to two different conclusions of what is wise. Um, probably the biggest thing for Christians to consider right now is this, um, because it's in the, in the fore of the political world. Would it be helpful to have in the Constitution of the United States, or as we get to vote on this year, later this year, to have in the Constitution of North Carolina what marriage is, and that marriage is the the joining together of a man and a woman. Now, that brings a lot of questions to us. For example, do we think the government should have anything to say about this? Do we think it matters what the Constitution says about that? Um, There are those who would say government should not legislate morality. 
Problem is uh, Romans uh, 13 seems to speak of government as a threat to those who do evil and seems to speak in moral terms. And so um, there, there's questions there. For example, if you say the government should be willing to, to, to make claims against homosexuality, well, what about adultery? Should government prosecute for adultery? Okay, well, what about dishonesty? Okay, what about being disobedient to parents? See, there's a scale there, right? And I think we would say there are some things belong to the governance of family, and there are some things that belong to the governance of church, and there are some things that belong to the governance of the states, and there are some things that belong to the governance of the, the nation. So those are the kinds of practical things where my mind just gets all mixed up and wishy-washy. But uh, I think as Christians, what we ought to be praying through and thinking through is this. Would it be helpful to at least have established in the law of the land uh, what marriage is uh, for a man? Uh, that it is the union of a man and a woman and um, I think that's what we ought to be thinking about. Of course, the ultimate thing we should be thinking about is this. What does our nation need more than anything else? Laws do not change people's hearts. It's the gospel that changes people's hearts. And we live in a democracy. If people are changed, the government will change. If people are changed, the laws will change because that's the way democracy works. And so the gospel is the best political weapon we have, though it's about so much more than politics. Anything else? Any other questions? You've heard that verse? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the question of, of, of doesn't salt and light, being salt and light mean being involved in politics? And, um, you know, at the voice of being, I mean, at the, at the risk of being controversial, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I think we ought to vote. You know, I think if God has given us the opportunity we have in a democracy, I think we ought to, to make use of it. Um, again, I want to be careful. I can't point to a, to a Bible verse that says, thou shalt vote. And, um, and I suppose there may be situations in which not voting might be a, a righteous Christian thing to do. But I think in general, we exercise being salt and light one way is, is through voting. It's not the main way. It's not the only way. But it is one way uh, that we get to be salt and light is, is through voting. Good, good discussion. Good questions. Appreciate it. I, I don't know what other subjects we may cover in the next weeks. I don't know how long this will last. I might get here next Sunday night and we're back in Romans. I don't know, but um, we're, we'll see what, what we're going to cover on Sunday nights. If you have something that you particularly have questions about, what does the Bible say about that? Let me know, and uh, maybe we'll, uh, we'll find time to, uh, to spend the Sunday night thinking about it, and hopefully it'll be helpful in all of us learning to, to think biblically. So, uh, just let me know if you have something. Let's pray together.